If you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, could you take them out and turn them on to Psalm 96? Um, uh, Like Steve, uh, Father Steve uh, preached last week, I want to hold ourselves a little bit more in in the Psalms uh, for a couple of different reasons. Um, We're in the season of Epiphany. Uh, Epiphany is a fancy word for revelation. Um, It's actually my favorite season for a lot of reasons, which maybe I'll describe a little bit, but there are two special kind of unique features to uh, epiphany or revelation. One is it's the revelation of Jesus as the Messiah. So, for example, in the gospel reading this morning, we, we uh, heard about Jesus' first big miracle, uh, the, the, uh, the turning of the water into wine. And, uh, and it, it's a part of discovering the true identity of Jesus the Messiah as, the, uh, um, as God incarnate. But there's another aspect to Epiphany, which is the revelation of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. Uh, This sits very close to my heart. As some of you know, I I spent some time in Israel working among Jewish believers in Jesus, and um, I learned how not to take for granted my identity as a Gentile. I'm a Gentile. I'm assuming most of us here are Gentiles, although I know some of us who worship uh, uh, in our community are are, uh, Jewish believers in Jesus as well. And there's a reason why that's important. Um, And there's a reason why I'm raising this issue with this psalm. Um, Psalm 96 is a very special psalm. Uh, All the psalms are special. But I'll tell you something, uh, kind of a little secret about myself and the psalms. I I haven't found it easy always to pray the psalms. And I've heard other people talk about this too. Um, there are big words in the Psalms and big ideas and kind of big fancy things. And we hear, we hear things like ascribe uh, all, uh, un, you know, what, what does it say here? Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Now that sounds really powerful, but it does nothing for me without a little work. I don't ever use those words. I don't ascribe things. I don't, I don't really know what glory actually really means. And so I say them, but nothing happens inside. I don't know if you're like that. I, I have had to work at, at kind of uh, coming at the Psalms differently. And, and yet it's just so vital to do that. And, and there's some really important things we can learn about uh, God, but especially about our relationship with God that I think are important here. Psalm 96 is introduced during the season of Epiphany because of its kind of missionary nature. So the thrust of, the psalm, of psalm 96 with respect to Epiphany is that this is the revelation of God to the nations. And you'll see in, in uh, Psalm 96 that you'll have a lot of this, families of the earth, the nations, um, even the whole world itself, the planet. And so uh, the church has at times understood, I, I think this is an unfortunate thing, if you turn your page back to Psalm 95, which we say in morning prayer every day, this is where... Uh, the psalmist says, harden not your heart as you did in the day of provocation. Okay, so now that refers to a time, uh, not a very good time in Israel's past, where they uh, did not believe in something that God had asked them to do. And, and, the, and, the, and the Old Testament way of talking about that is to talk about a hard heart. And, and actually, uh, this is for another sermon, uh, um, a hard heart is the worst thing you can have. It's the problem. Like it, when God really wants to talk about the human condition at its most basic form, it's when there's a hard heart. Some Christians have understood Psalm 96 to co- go something like this. The Jews had a hard heart 
uh, and so God had to turn to the Gentiles. This is not a good message, and it doesn't really capture what the Bible is getting at here, and it leaves out a lot of the beauty of the story, actually. So I want to just tell a little bit of that story uh, just so that we can get into the spirit of Psalm 96 here. You'll remember that in the, in, in the Jewish history, one of the most foundational moments is the call of Abraham, way at the very beginning. He's the first Jewish person. They didn't have a word Jew back then. Um, God intervenes in human history to call out this one person, Abraham, um, way out in the desert. And he gives a promise to Abraham, which is rippled throughout history, even to this day, and will not fully be consummated until the Lord returns. And it's a very powerful thing for all of us, Jews and Gentiles, because this is the promise that God made to Abraham. I will make of you a great nation, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So I hope you can hear in that the twin component of God's promise I will make of you, Abraham, a great nation, the Jewish people. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's all the non-Jewish people. So God's got everyone in mind. But the way he's going to bless everyone is through particularities. Now, you'll hear this families of the earth kind of come forth in Psalm 96. So you can see how vivid this kind of language is. All right, God likes to work in particulars not just in vague generalities. And you'll find this theme running all the way through and into the New Testament where the Apostle Paul himself says the gospel itself, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, Romans 1.16. So Paul is, understands that hardness of heart is a problem. And in fact, in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, he says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Somehow, our histories are working together. And the reason why is because God delights in overcoming obstacles. He loves to bring people together. What's more exciting than, to him than just kind of vague speech about all people is to show how Jew and Gentile can be reconciled in the body of Christ. Just like rather than making some androgynous person, he made male and female. There's something even in God himself as Trinity. There's something about the togetherness of reality that speaks very powerfully to the gospel's ability to overcome obstacles and reconcile. So here's the point. Um, The point is that With respect to Psalm 96, we have something very concrete to be thankful for. We have something very concrete to sing about. And that's as Gentiles that we have been grafted in, to use Paul's term, by God's grace into the covenant promise. Now, I didn't really think much about this until I was with around a lot of Jewish, until I was around a lot of Jewish people particularly Jewish believers in Jesus, when I began to realize that, wait a second, there's something really neat going on here. I remember worshiping in a, in a Jewish congregation in, in Jerusalem where there were mostly all Jewish believers in Jesus, and I, as a Gentile, was a minority. I, all of a sudden, I thought, this, this is amazing. You know, I've never experienced something like that before, to be the other way around and to see that the promise of God is actually working. You know, I mean, as a Gentile, by no right of my own, I actually happen to have the privilege of participating in the story of God. 
So when, when the psalmist says, ascribe unto the Lord glory and strength, this is what I want to focus on, is um, that, that we need to bring the vigor of this psalm into a relationship with the concrete details of our lives. So that what rises up in our hearts and out of our mouths is a beautiful, heartfelt, meaningful song that's inspired by an actual encounter with the living God so that this doesn't become kind of vague. Now, for some of us, I think, we don't really have a song at all. We're mostly silent. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. We're not connected to God in any meaningful way other than maybe perhaps intellectually, but we're not really singing. For some of us, our attention may be just drawn elsewhere. We simply like the songs that the world is singing better. I mean, I certainly am kind of pointing the finger at myself in that. I mean, I live in an American culture. It's very distracting. And sometimes their songs uh, are louder than this other song that I should be singing. I may not even be singing anything in particular. Um, now, for some of us, we may have a lot of ambivalence. And I, I feel this way, too, in myself. I have conflicting things to say. I'm stuck in an old song. There's an old song I'm singing, and it's very hard to unhear it. And the new song hasn't yet displaced it. Um, I want to sing a new song, but it hurts. Maybe you're a little bit like that too. So there's, there's reasons why it's hard to sing. Now, Israel, as always, provides a great uh, analogy for the life of faith, Israel's journey, that is. Their journey uh, um, produced these songs. Now, I, I don't want to take that for granted. The Psalter that we have is a result of Israel being squeezed in a life of faith. You know, as, I don't know if you have any Jewish friends, but maybe you'll have heard them joke around sometimes. Lord, couldn't you have chosen some other people? <laughs> you know, it's hard to be the chosen people. In the pressure cooker of being God's chosen people, what's squeezed out of that is all kinds of lament and glory and praise and, you know, and ache and longing and beauty, and that's what's our Psalter. It's produced out of the story of Israel. <clears throat> So for them, it's very real. Um, Psalm 96 is interesting. And for those of you who like to get uh, in, into a little bit of the interest of it, uh, um, Psalm 96 is almost entirely a quote from 1 Chronicles 16. Okay, 1 uh, um, Chronicles 16 is the account of King David as he's... Uh, dancing before the Ark of the Covenant being restored to Jerusalem. I'll explain all that in just a second. So here's what's going on here. I just love this kind of thing. Psalm 96. Now, the Psalter itself is composed at a period of time in Israel's history when they have already gotten kicked out of the land. Do you know that whole story? In, in 30 seconds, it's remember the God calls Israel. They, they get King David. He's the greatest of all kings. They have this united kingdom, but then they fight all the kids, and the kingdom splits, and then you have really bad kings, and Israel does really bad things, and, and they have to be punished, and they get kicked out of the land into foreign lands. But the story doesn't end there. Uh, there is a time when from the foreign lands, they regather back into the land of Israel and rebuild the temple. And that's kind of the end of the Old Testament storytelling. And then Jesus comes into that context. Okay? So there's a lot of things going on in all of those eras. Okay? There's a lot of history writing. And then there's prophets who are speaking. And they're telling Israel, hey, get your act together. And then there's prophets speaking even when Israel gets kicked out of the land. And the prophets there say, hey, 
Story's not over yet. Okay? And then when they move back, right, there's more prophecy to say, hey, you're doing a good job. Like, God is in this. It may not look like it, but he's in this. Okay, so here's the point. The Psalms are collected during this period of time after Israel's already been through this whole story. So here's the reason why I'm saying this. What's interesting is First Chronicles is also written in that time. The person writing First Chronicles is also writing at the very end of the story I just told. Now, this is why I'm sharing all this complexity with you. It's not to overwhelm or confuse. This song that David sang travels with Israel all the way through its history. That's what I'm trying to get at. David sings a song that's very unique and concrete in his own time. But that song stays with the Jewish people as they experience all of the complexity of their fractured kingdom and their waywardness and sin and their punishment and exile and their rediscovery of God out there and then the return back to the land and the question of is the promise still holding that song of King David that song of King David goes with Israel throughout this entire process so that when the chronicler who writes the story about King David is writing David's song. He's not just hearing it from David's perspective. He's hearing it from the perspective of somebody who's, whose family history has lived throughout this whole entire process of, of, of glory and sin and rejection and restoration. That's what's in the heart. And it is in the heart of the person who put psalm, the psalms together. So I don't know exactly when Psalm 96 was written, but it was later, obviously after the time of David. It was sung, for sure, in exile, and it's being sung again now that Israel's back in the land, rebuilding the temple, which is not as glorious as the old temple, and that causes people some concern. So you can see that the psalmist and the, and the Israelites, when they're saying, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name and celebrate his wonderful works, these are very concrete things that come to their mind. Their minds, their hearts, their imagination is populated by very specific events in their people's journey. And they're painful. And they're glorious. And they're, they're powerful. So here, what's interesting in Psalm 96 is that there's a little addition that does not, is not quoted from Psalm, the, the Song of David in 1 Chronicles, and that is the first verse. O sing unto the Lord a new song. So it's an interesting contrast, isn't it? That he says, sing unto the Lord a new song, and here I'm going to quote a very old song. I find that really moving. And here's why. Because when the Lord inspires us to sing a new song, it's with great sensitivity to the lives that we're actually living and that have lived. The Lord is not saying, I don't care about the old song. I don't care about what came before. I just want, I'm just some megalomaniac God that wants you, know, you to kind of give it to me. You know, This is not at all what 
pleases God. What pleases God is for him to see us showing back to him, singing back to him the, the love that he has manifested in our lives through all the ups and downs that belong to our journey and our story. So the song of David is not stuck in past time. Neither is it kind of merely recited as a formality. The song of David is a new song. It's current. It's contemporary. Israel knows what it means to be separated from God. One of the most poignant songs is Psalm 137, sung by the Jewish people just after they got kicked out. And, and you may know it, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat and we wept when we remembered Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? On the willows there we hung up our harps. It's just so achingly painful to read that. And yet, and thank God it's there, because the Lord wants us to sing that song too. He doesn't want us to be dishonest. But it's so beautiful to think that there in exile, there was a time, there was a moment when Israel in exile began to experience the love of God in such a way that even though they had been dragged through the valley of despair and were upset and were angry and were broken and were not able to sing, they were eventually able to take the harp off the tree and sing a new song. And even there you can hear the prophets speaking the desire of God because they were hearing something like this from the prophet Isaiah who said, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. This is what he's telling Isaiah. I want you to speak words of comfort to them. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. She's been received from the Lord's hand, double of all her sins. And now it's time to learn again what it means to be the apple of God's eye. And so slowly the community in exile regrouped, chastened by her punishment, repentant, comforted by God's presence in an entirely different way, in a different place, with a renewed sense of community, a renewed sense of experiencing God together. God did not leave them alone there, nor did he give up on his mission, his promise. Although Israel broke their word, God did not. And that's really the message of Jesus, really, is that God not, only, God not only holds up his end of the bargain, but he upholds our end of the bargain as well. And they, they discovered there in Babylon, by the way, that God was not local. Like David, they knew that God was God alone and that God, the gods of the nations are idols. They knew that, but now they know it by experience. They're in the foreign land, and they're outside the land of Israel, and in the presence of their enemies, to quote Psalm 23, they have discovered a new dimension of God's grandeur and a new sense of their own identity that they could never have known otherwise. There, not in the land of Israel, but there among the nations, there they can sing a new song. They can take their harps off the willow tree. They can have their tears dried, and they can experience what David says. He has set a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Imagine Israel in exile, like David, experiencing the return of the presence of God into their hearts. So there, you know, that, that the ark, which, by the way, was a very important liturgical piece for Israel, the ark of the covenant back in, in the old days of David's time, <clears throat> 
uh, had, it was covered by something called the mercy seat, which was where the presence of God dwelt uh, in the tabernacle, and um, also contained the Ten Commandments and Aaron's rod and manna. It was a very, very special testimony of Israel's journey and their bearing witness to God's faithfulness to them. So David was very excited that that ark, which had been captured by the Philistines, by enemy territory, now it was being returned to Israel. And uh, this was something that, 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 that inspired David with exuberant dancing and joy. Even embarrassed his wife, as you can imagine. I mean, if I started dancing like that, um, I think I'd embarrass my wife too. <clears throat> um, um, and so that becomes a metaphor now for uh, the restoration of God's presence in the community in exile. So now I hope you can see how the rest of the, the psalm can unfold with more clarity. You can see that Israel's imagination was alive and fertile and populated by their story, the call of Abraham, the rise of David, the tragedy of exile, the miracle of return. <clears throat> so in declaring God's works, which is the word in verse 3, Israel draws upon these concrete details, but even more, the Jewish community can say that the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, because just like Daniel in Persia, if you know that story, they've lived through the fire and they saw God. It's better than we could have thought. This God who can show us this thing and do this kind of thing for us, he is beautiful. The word ends the Psalms. He's beautiful and he's strong, verse 6. This song that Israel sings is the way in which her mission is accomplished. And that gets us back to our epiphany theme. It's the authentic, heartfelt singing of this new song and worship in the midst of others that's the basis of mission and even renewal of the whole earth. Because you'll see that in the end of the chapter, we have the whole earth, even the, the, um, the seas and the, the things in the field and the trees of the forest. The whole earth becomes really what it was always meant to be, which is a, a reflection back to God of his beauty. Now, because Israel has discovered God in exile and experienced a sovereign initiative to restore them back to the land of Israel, they have a renewed sense of confidence to claim that in every place, not just in the land of Israel, but in every place, God reigns. Thank you, Steve. <laughs> you know what it's like to look at your Bible when you're in front of people. He reigns, verse 10. It's a beautiful, beautiful word here. Um, that not only in Israel, but outside, the Lord reigns. And so you can see that the whole arc of Israel's story is swept up into this ultimate hope of God's return to set things right forever. Their new song is, in fact, the song that creation sings as it awaits for the coming of the Lord. Here's how the Apostle Paul put it. Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. So this is the new song. This is the story of the Bible, and that's why the details matter. And I want to just kind of bring some kind of points of application here. First of all, we are the nations that this Jewish psalmist is exhorting to sing. So I don't want us to simply think that we're the psalmist, not yet. I want us to, I want us to know ourselves as the audience that the psalmist is addressing. In other words, 
we're the Gentiles, most of us here, we're the Gentile nations that are expected to hear this new song. We're the nations that this Jewish psalmist is exhorting now to sing. We're the nation in whose midst this Jewish person is singing and we're hearing. That's the way it worked. Like, we were the, we're the audience of the missionary enterprise of the Jewish people. And because of God's grace and because of the faithfulness of the early Jewish believers to take this message beyond the Jewish community, we're here in Annapolis worshiping their God. But now not as strangers, but as adopted children, so that their God now, their father is now our father in heaven. We're the sons of daughters of God that creation eagerly longs to see. Creation somehow is amazed that we're gathered here. Like, somehow, if we could hear the trees singing, they'd be saying, it's amazing to see you. Like, we've been waiting for you. Because who would have ever guessed that God would take the word out all the way to Annapolis, Maryland? We're the product of that mission from the Jewish people through the Spirit of God. And now we are witnesses of that God's grace. Where we are, we're the evidence that God is true to his word. The only reason we're here is because God spoke to Abraham. And he said, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And it, and it worked. We're the witnesses of that. That's amazing. It's exciting to be a part of this story. It's very exciting to be a part of this story because it's not over yet. It's not over until Messiah returns and turns the page to a new chapter of the new world where his sanctuary, verse 6, and this world become fully united. The new Jerusalem coming down from heaven is the way that John, John talks about it in Revelations. And that's why we Gentiles, foreigners, or wild branches as Paul calls them, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. When we ascribe glory to, to God, our testimony is that we were brought in, not by any quality of our own, but because God is that good, and now we share in its heritage. We are heirs of the covenant promise. And so the natural thing to do is to tell him that. Our song is to the Lord. And that's the first point we need to start before we start singing even to anyone else. We sing to the Lord a new song. We tell him, you are amazing. Through our song to him, and then in verse 8, and our actions, our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, you'll hear that phrase come up again later in the liturgy, we join with the entire planet in just being amazed by God, rejoicing in the glory of all this awesome meaning and purpose and promise, because otherwise life is pretty dismal. It's really dismal. And yet not for those who are grafted into the promise of God because he shows us something that we could have never seen before. It's a new song. In another way, a very personal thing. So while we can be amazed and we ought to be amazed by this big picture, which is very inspiring to me, I hope to you too, it's also deeply, deeply personal and individual. To say among the nations that the Lord reigns is something that we know personally, fully in Jesus like the Song of David gains more meaning as it travels through time, so too the expression, the Lord reigns, which we hear here, travels through time and locates itself in Jesus the Messiah. He reigns. In him, 
the world was established. And you can see here, we praise God because the world was established. In John 1, what does it say? That in Jesus, all creation hangs together. It's very personal. In order to sing with real conviction, it has to be personal. We cannot sing theoretical songs. We just can't. We have to feel it. And we will have felt it if indeed we have experienced the power of the cross for the atonement of our sins and experienced the gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives that makes the presence of Jesus real to us. Here's how Paul says it. Paul says in Galatians, because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, of course, son and daughter. Um, the son word is important because in that culture, the inheritance traveled through the son. So for both sons and daughters, we're heirs. We're not just, we're not just optional people. We're in the will. That's deeply personal. Have you experienced that? Have you actually felt the relief of being forgiven of sins? Uh, uh, have you felt the, the joy of having the Holy Spirit touch a painful memory in your past and heal it? Have you, have you experienced the, the fruition of your, uh, of your life bearing fruit in a testimony of change, that it didn't have to stay the way that it was, but God actually was able to change the way that it was. These have to be felt inside. That's what inspires singing. It's challenging because maybe we say, well, I just don't know the new song or I'm not comfortable singing a new song. Well, the first step may just begin with that first verse to say it to him. Our first performance belongs just to him. Sing unto the Lord a new song. Have you ever ascribed glory and strength to the Lord? Now, that may sound a little odd to you, like this phrase, ascribe. But actually, it's as natural to the human spirit as breathing. What do guys do when they see a beautiful girl? Michael reminded me of Shakespeare's son at 18. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate, and thy eternal summer shall not fade. That's ascribing glory. Now, if Shakespeare's a little too heavy for you, I was thinking of Stevie Wonder. You are the sunshine of my life. That's why I'll always be around. And then quoting scripture, he says, you are the apple of my eye. Forever you'll stay in my heart. I, I had to elevate the level a little bit after our Spice Girls performance last week. So I'm not going to sing it, by the way. See how natural that is? That's ascribing glory to your beloved. That's why I'll always be around, because that's what it's like to be around. You're the sunshine of my life. You're, you're even beyond compared to a summer's day, which I think is really nice on a, thinking about on a day like this. Just make it concrete. Recount the details of how you discovered the Lord and what it felt like to encounter him. Tell him, you're the sunshine of my life. Tell Jesus what it's like to know that you're forgiven because of what he did. Share your joy that one day he will come to judge the earth. And that's a good thing. And he's going to remove from us and from the whole world everything that's harmful. And, and just listen for what he might say to you about that. 
Singing our new song is the basis for singing to everybody else. Singing our song helps us hear the songs of other people and move out into their space with an authentic expression of God's gracious reign because we're experiencing it ourselves. Sing unto the Lord a new song. Amen.